Hello, welcome to the Film Geek Collective. Today we're going to be reviewing Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. It is Monday when I'm recording this, so yeah. I stopped doing weekends because it would have stressed me too much. You know, I'm going to do my usual format, non-spoiler, then shoutouts, and then spoiler alert. So, no spoilers first of all. But, you know, I want to tell you that... You know, this film is quite creative and inventive, and I'm really into weird sort of stuff. This is from the same writer who did Being John Malkovich, Charlie Kaufman, although it's a different director. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, the different director is Michael, or Mikkel, I can't pronounce his name, uh, Gondry? Yeah, Gondry, I'll just say that. But, yeah, anyway. This, Spike Jones was the director for Being John Malkovich, uh, Michael Gondry was the director for this one. And yeah, there's a reason this won Best Original Screenplay the year it released. It's not schmaltzy, it's creative, it's experimental, and it isn't bloody well schmaltzy. By the way, this is going to be an explicit episode. The film would fall under explicit in the way that, yeah, there's some swearing and some sex references, and that'll be about this podcast. You know, anyway. So the basic premise with no spoilers of this film is that Clementine is a free-spirited woman and Joel's a man who just wants to be loved. They become romantically involved, but he learns she had a memory erasure procedure about him, so he signs up to do the same. Can't go any further than that, but I will say it's one of my favourite romantic films, and romance isn't my favourite genre in the world. You know, I like when Harry met Sally, I like when Love Actually... Yeah, I like Love Actually. You know, I have a podcast episode on When Harry Met Sally, if you care to scroll down through Anchor or Spotify or whatever, wherever it is you listen to it. Some people listen maybe on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> so anyway yeah it's the only film where mary jane and the hulk are in the same movie the actors kirsten dunst from sam raimi's spider-man trilogy and mark ruffalo from the avengers who plays hulk bruce banner there john brian brian anyway he composed a score for this one he seems to like experimental projects you know this and punch drunk love now i feel like Like, even people who don't usually like romantic films should definitely, definitely see this movie. It is a unique movie about memory, about, you know, emotions tied with memories and that sort of thing. And I reckon that, you know, if you're into a good, simple, character-driven science fiction sort of thing and you like surreality, you're really going to like this film and I really, really recommend it to you. You know, um, you have, <laughs> what's not to like, there's Elijah Wood, Kirsten Dunst, Mark Ruffalo, Jim Carrey, Kate Winslet. It's like an all-star cast, and it wasn't that expensive to get everyone together. Like something like Bruce Almighty, which Jim Carrey was also in, that's $80 million. That's overpriced for a bloody studio comedy. Um, this indie film, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, is, it costs 20 million US dollars to actually make. So that's pretty on the cheap, considering that I think that most of the effects were practical. Some of them I can't figure out, and you won't be able to figure that out either. If I can't figure it out, hell, I'm supposed to be kind of the expert here. So anyway, uh, yeah, I'm going to do the shout-outs and then get into spoiler territory, but for those who have not seen this film, definitely watch this and definitely watch the other film that Charlie Kaufman wrote the screenplay for, being John Malkovich, and also he's coming out with a new project on Netflix, which I'm excited for. So anyway, moving on, I'm going to give shout-outs to Teacup Arenos, Classic Blonde, Naked Airplane, KO, Savage Elbow, Elsot Wen, Sam from IJ, Still Mellow, Lee, JN75, Contrera, Tessie Cat, Pat Cat, Mary Amber, Real Sharks Podcast, Ekige, Ribishaku, 
Autistic in Melbourne, Ashy Slushy, Heavenly Imagine, Rose Begali, Larry 1937-2621, Dev Diner, My Belly Unicorn, Talk Me Into, Schlock V, Films with Amy, Film, Mama Tick, Zeus, Elsie Cool, Zach Ascot, Craig Fisher, Caution Spoilers, Sin the Madness Podcast, and Eric Sluss. <laughs> I know, he likes the ands thing that's going on, you know, just to explain for those, you know, it's probably buried deep in Twitter by now, but, uh, you know, before I get into the review, I'll just say, you know, it's sort of an in-joke thing, you know, Lost in Space would have and guest starring, uh, this guy is, uh, Dr. Harris, you know what I mean, like, like, whatever, I might have mixed up the names, because, you know, it's not about Lost in Space, the podcast, so, Anyway, I'm going to go into spoiler territory. You know, even though the guy was in every episode, they still had and guest starring this actor. So that's just sort of an in-joke, you know. <laughs> I mean, Eric said he always likes to be the and guy. Now, moving on, moving on. We're going to go into spoiler territory now. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, the very first shot is of Jim Carrey waking up. You know, he's like random thoughts on Valentine's Day 2004. Today is a holiday invented by greeting card companies to make people feel like crap. Nice and cynical already. Woo! <laughs> so he takes a trip to Montauk, but insists he's not impulsive. When he's on the phone, he's shown from a distance. You know, he's sort of at the payphone sort of thing. Like, there's varying distance shots as he make random observations about things. But a character observation is he should maybe get back to the, together with Naomi. Naomi is a figure who you actually see in the deleted scenes section. But there are still hints of her in the final cut, and it's implied that the, the deleted scenes, like, happened. But they took away from the tone of the film what they were trying to achieve. They wanted to make Joel more sympathetic, basically, is what they wanted. So, yeah, you can check out the deleted scenes, maybe if you have the DVD, the Blu-ray, maybe YouTube if you want. So, yeah, when he's... Yeah. He's like, why do I fall in love with every woman I see who shows me the least bit of attention? Yeah, pretty relatable. But yeah, when Clementine and Joel first meet, like not first first meet, their first meeting's earlier as we find out later, the dialogue sounds quite realistic and she asks if he shopped at Barnes & Noble. Criterion fans will know that store. <laughs> anyway, I digress. Clementine goes on, talks about different hair dyes, which store she met him at. Realistic dialogue doesn't always stick to the point, but in these cases you can tell about characters and their interests, the things that they focus upon. Now, Clementine's quirky, fun-loving, while Joel's, like, a bit more cynical, I guess. To me, he's a little bit more cynical. Not, he's not like, oh, this world's going to hell, fuck everything, ah. Yeah, so, which we know from his narration, but not his actions. He's desperate for approval, and vulnerability makes for great characters, you know? It makes for great people. Like, it's, it's good to, not, it's good to be vulnerable. It's good to be open about who you are, what your emotions are, you know. Like, that sort of thing. Just mostly. Uh, he's self-deprecating, where she doesn't care what people think. At least we think that. And I think this exchange highlights things perfectly. Like, Clementine's like, I'm a vindictive little bitch, truth be told. Joel's like, gee, I, I wouldn't think that about you. Why wouldn't you think about that? Ab Sorry. <clears throat> Why wouldn't you think that about me? I, I don't know. I, I just, I don't know. I just, uh, you seem nice. So, so, oh, now I'm nice? Oh, God. Don't you know any other adjectives? I don't need nice. I don't need myself to be it. And I don't need anybody else to be it at me. Okay? Yeah, that's... Honestly, I do see why this one best original screenplay. There are some great exchanges here, which I really absolutely love. She does apologize for yelling at Joel. She says she's a bit out of sorts. 
She's like, my embarrassing admission is, I really like that you're nice right now. I mean, I can't tell from one moment to the next what I'm going to like, but right now, I'm glad you are. Now, yeah, he finds a spark that makes his life interesting, but he still doesn't have that confidence in himself. Really cool visual they use as the front cover. The large crack in the ice, Joel and Clementine lying di- kind of diagonally. I really like the... It's even before we get into his mind, things are a little bit surreal already. And I like that. I mean, appearances can be deceiving. It's going to be semi-common in the film. Elijah Wood first appears at 17 minutes. We don't think it's important, but it becomes so. Immediately after this scene, his responsibilities foreshadowed. He's the one erasing Joel's memory. Expectations can be subverted. The opening credits don't even appear till like 17 minutes. Joel's clearly distraught. It's like, hey, I'm just going to get my toothbrush. And then, like, almost, it's almost like the force of a smash cut. Just him crying in his car. Now, the cuts are somewhat quick in this film, but in a way that lets it flow, not the cuts being too quick or anything. You know, some of the shots last five, six seconds. Some of the shots are closer to 20. The average shot length's probably somewhere in between. But there's like a 20-second shot that's decently long, not especially extended. So Joel's finding that Clementine has a new boyfriend, Elijah Wood, Patrick, the same guy who stopped by Joel's car. So he's walking through the door, leads back to a house he's entered, and it's David Cross who hands him their lacuna letter. Clementine's had a memory erased. You know, we hear a scientist's voice echo before he's even in the dream. Then we cut to him in a new room, which I thought, yeah, I love the general atmosphere of this film, you know? Sort of blurs dreams and reality, knowing what he's signed up for or what he's going to sign up for, you know? Maybe he's getting himself into that frame of mind. So... The main doctor, Mirzwiak, asks Joel about Clementine. Joel says that Rob and his wife invited him and Naomi to a beach party, but Naomi couldn't go, but I went and met Clementine. So, yeah, (laughs) one of my absolute favourite quotes. He's about to start the procedure and, you know, uh, he asks, is there any risk of brain damage? And Mirzwiak just says, well, technically speaking, the procedure is brain damage, but it's it's on a par with a night of heavy drinking. Nothing you'll miss. Bloody brilliant, mate. (laughs) That is just... (laughs) Note to self, uh, use Australian slash UK words more. (laughs) Anyway, um, at the 33-minute mark, Joel's already in his head, repeating words the doctor says. Here's where he recognises Patrick. Even in the streets where it's snowing, he appears to sit in the machine. Hear electronic echoing voices. Once even, kind of accelerated like this, you know? So, anyway, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, what, are the scientists thinking he's six, sorry, let me get the expression right, there's an expression in Australia, you know, uh, one can shot of a six pack, like a six pack of beer, I don't even really drink beer, I think it doesn't taste good, but you know, that's sort of uh, an expression to say, hey, you're going crazy, you know, an outsider might think, oh, Joel's brainwaves, he's just trying to run away from the memory erasure, because... At some point, he's, like, deciding, no, I don't I don't want these memories erased. But, you know, he's not one can short of a six-pack, honestly. <laughs> so, anyway, a first memory or the last memory in his mind of her is, like, bitter. And another good exchange comes here. Clementine's like, don't call me pathetic. And Joel just says to her, it is pathetic. It's fucking irresponsible. To me, this exchange shows something else. She does care what people think. She just doesn't want to admit it. 
This is how you write a complex character. You know, in terms of writing techniques, you could write a character outline. Put yourself in a situation in that character's shoes. See how, how you would react. And then they go on further. And this quote does come back later in a way. Now, I'll note that. And Clementine's saying, you're thinking, did she fuck someone tonight? And Joel says, no, see, Clem, I assume you fucked someone tonight. Isn't that how you get people to like you? You know, that moment of exaggeration when you're angry is totally relatable. You don't see positivity in that moment. Look, I, I, people would get that, definitely. I love the way the film blends realistic and surreal. The technician's voices heard whilst we see the scenes in the dream world, but the moments are so reality, like the car falling out of the sky, <laughs> or random, just pan, taking us from the outside at night to inside a room in the daytime. Even the TV in that room showing, like, the, the middle part of Jim Carrey that would have been blocked off. So, yeah, when, when Joel tries to find out hidden details in his memory, such as if a man is Patrick, he can't find out. Clementine's moved on to Patrick. She's still impulsive. She gets upset. She's impulsive. You know, she worries. She's ugly. She wants to go on a holiday to distract herself and not deal with her personal problems, which ultimately she does in the ending. Well, it's implied she will. But we we really get the gist. I'll get to that because I sort of go through chronological order with these analysis things. Uh, so yeah, it's at 55 minutes is when Joel wants to call the procedure off. I think the film overall expertly explores dreams. Like, you know, we have the surreality of a woman with no face, a man with upside down eyes, people randomly disappearing. But the awareness of being in a dream is especially relatable and terrifying when you're in a nightmare. I mean, we've all been there. Some dreams are realer than real, and some are realistic, but clearly fake. Some you don't remember, but some you do, and these you do, even buried within your psyche. I mean, Clementine straight up admits to being impulsive. I don't think that would have happened with the real Clementine. <sighs> but yeah, there's, there's a great effects scene involving forced perspective. I don't know how the hell it's done. <laughs> So Jim Carrey is away from the camera. He's in pajamas. Kate Winslet's more kind of toward the camera. Uh, for those who didn't know what forced perspective was, I basically just described it. He's not as tall as the fridge, but my question is, how did they pull off some of these shots? I get Kate Winslet being bigger in the frame, but shots of him reaching up toward the fridge when he's practically toddler size and like a top-down shot from the fridge. Could the sets be oversized, maybe? What? I guess... The, I can guess techniques for these usually, but not here. Now, my favourite dread of his supporting characters is Kirsten Dunst. She's clearly afraid of me as we act the boss of a company, like seeing her stoned, but not really, because toward the end it's like revealed she was in love with him, but her memory was erased. If the thread works better on repeat viewings. You know, Charlie was clearly writing things with that in mind. Like, like what are you going to realize on repeat viewings? Things had to make sense from the beginning. And a lot of writers do that. You know, things like The Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, that sort of thing. I, I won't say why, because I don't want to spoil other films. So there are some sparing moments of comedy. You know, Clementine, Joel on the other side of the fence seeing a movie at the drive-in, which is on the opposite side that they're on, making up dialogue. And he tries to humiliate himself once he uh, he masturbates to a comic, like uh, an erotic comic, and it doesn't work. So he has to travel back further to when he was a kid. You know, I guess since Clementine would have obviously seen him sexually before, that probably doesn't make sense to humiliate him. She's probably seen him kind of like that before, but she hasn't seen his childhood trauma. So they go back and he has to hit a dead bird with a hammer. 
I don't think it was harmed during the making of this film. It wouldn't have been. The hits are off screen, so I really doubt it was real. And you know what? You can't always trust a no animals were harmed thing unless it's absolutely confirmed by reliable sources. That organization has covered up animal cruelty in the past. And if there's one thing I hate, it's animal fucking cruelty. You know, it's even given its seal of approval on some films, despite knowing something happened on set. I don't really give him credence, you know? Like, I, I won't go into details here, but if you would like, you can search that up in some of the ones they've covered, for example. Okay, I'll give you one example before I go on, on with Eternal Sunshine. Pirates of the Caribbean. They still gave the movie their seal, despite the fact that the explosions, which occurred underwater, killed enough fish and squid that they were washing up on the beach for four days straight. If that's not fucked, I don't know what is. I don't know what is. And I get very angry when I talk about animal cruelty, so it's something I just cannot handle, you know? So yeah, I'm going to go back to Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Forgive me for that diatribe. I just thought I should let you know that. So yeah, I think that uh, there are two good quotes that Kirsten Dunst says to uh, Mirzwiak. One of them is, Blessed are the forgetful, for they get the better even of their blunders. Which is Nietzsche, I think it's that's pronounced. Then, of course, the, the other one from... Uh, Alexander Pope, which she squeezes it up in front of Mirzwiak and has to start saying it again. Nervous about him, kind of relaxed, says Pope Alexander instead, you know, and I really do like the quote, which is, which gives the film its title, How happy is the blameless Vestal's lot, the world forgetting by the world forgot, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, each prayer accepted and each wish resigned. When Mark Ruffalo's technician sees Mrs. Mirzwiak, he gets nervous. It's like a one-second shot of the window, where Mr. Mirzwiak and Kirsten Dunst's characters are kissing. And back to her before he honks the horn to warn him, she notices anyway, sighs, walks away. In a great non-verbal moment, this film really knows show, don't tell really well. I love that when they do that. You know, she walks away before pushing Ruffalo to the ground and anchor. Sorry, I said anchor, shit. <laughs> anger <laughs> so anyway so Mrs. Mirzwiak stops and says tell the poor girl you can have him you already did yeah I think there are definitely several reoccurring themes through here characters who don't know what to say appearances or more words being deceiving you know more words being deceiving I guess but when there's really a deeper meaning I kind of mix that up too you know sometimes I kind of stammer over the words but that's okay, I like making this podcast feel a bit more naturalistic, you know? I love how in the last 10 minutes the film reflects its opening moments. He wakes up in bed after the procedure. Now, opening the film with someone waking up in bed is incredibly overused, especially considering student films, but here it works. This is not my first time watching the film, so I'm remembering more. I think this is about my third viewing. So as this film proves, <laughs> memory's hard work, isn't it? Now, yeah, I'm going to be totally open. You know, because because I have Asperger's high-functioning autism, it helps me retain a lot of memory for things I'm interested in. So, yeah, I have a whole episode on autism if you want to scroll back a while through Spotify or Anchor or whatever it is, you know? Um, anyone who's interested in that sort of thing, you know? I'm open about that. So, moving on, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't care for discrimination against autistic people. You know, I'm one of them, so... Anyway, um... So... 
Um, I love how the nice thing comes back. I told you it'd come back. You know, she complaining. she's complaining about how he's saying nice all the time. And, you know, Joel's like, I, I had a nice night last night. Nice? And then he's like, I had the best fucking night of my entire fucking life last night. That's better. <laughs> so yeah, Clementine and Joel are back in real life. So she puts a tape of her speaking. She thinks he's boring and, you know, that he makes her unnecessarily angry. But ultimately she arrives back home, gets emotional, before meeting him again in his apartment whilst his tape plays. And I love how everything important comes back. The nice thing, even the you fucked someone thing, but in different words, in one of the angriest bits of the tape in which he says, the only way Clem thinks she can get people to like her is to fuck him. Or at least dangle the possibility of getting fucked in front of him. And she's so desperate and insecure that she'll, sooner or later, go around and fuck everybody. Now, the feeling is so intense. These these two hearing each other's tapes and Joel getting Clementine to come back. It's it's like kind of Curb Your Enthusiasm awkward comedy, except it's not comedy. Definitely not comedy. But it's not quite a thriller, but it's just that gut feeling in your stomach, the tightness. But they do decide ultimately that while they, what they have is definitely flawed, they'll stay together. And now his dreams of peace and rage combine into a bittersweet cocktail on the optimistic side, one that reaffirms faith that things will work out eventually. They don't always. Like, you know, I'm still kind of uncertain about Kirsten Dunst's character with uh, her boss. But, you know, I think things will work out for uh, Jim and Kate. I mean, Joel and uh, Clementine. They really do blend into their characters. This film has fantastic acting, a great screenplay, and the film feels quick. And that's a good thing. You know, a uh, hundred minutes, nice and tight, you know, make your film as long as you want to be, but just, you know, have every necessary thing in there. Have this film, Little Miss Sunshine, Die Hard, these are films that pack a lot into the time they have. And I love when that happens. I don't want films to screw around. I want films to just give us our money's worth in the running time allocated and not have bloat. Now, I'm all for experimentation, and, you know, there can be things technically unnecessary to the story, like 2001 A Space Odyssey with its uh, slower sequences, but that's a different type of film, and I'm okay with that. But narrative, like, you know, full-on narrative character films like this really should just get to the point, you know? And that's how I feel, definitely. That's how many people feel. So, yeah. Anyway... If you want to inspire, if you want to innovate, if you want to create, if you want to electrify, we need your voice because you can change things for the better, okay? Meet me in Montauk. People who have seen the movie, well, you've all seen the movie, I'm assuming, but, you know, you'll get that. Meet me in Montauk. <laughs>